I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. For our scripture reading this morning, I want to read the first seven verses. Colossians chapter 2. I urge you to follow along your copy of scriptures and read these first seven verses. Paul writes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving." Let's pray together. So, our Father, I pray that the seed of your word would find rich soil in our hearts today and it would bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100, as your spirit sees fit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the things that keep you awake at night? Now, that question may depend upon how old you are. It may be an answer that says simply something like, well, <laughs> I don't have any choice in the matter. I just am awake. What can I do? Uh, some of you might say, well, uh, if I have a cup of coffee a little too late in the evening, then that keeps me awake at night. But, but seriously, seriously, though, what kinds of things weigh on your heart and burden you down and it, 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 it plays around in your mind so much so that you toss and turn? Through the course of the night. Health problems, finances, politics, loved ones, situations in the family, extended or immediate, in crises. Well, I realize that in a, a congregation of this size, the answer to that question could be as varied as there are a number of people here today. But 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12 Paul exhorts God's people to know those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So, we're going to look at this passage today from the standpoint of what keeps pastors awake at night. You know, you could, uh, you could hear a bunch of uh, anecdotes about mm, um, ecclesiastical horror stories, you know, things that happen in churches that cause pastors all kinds of consternation. Well, I, I don't want to bore you with that kind of stuff. Instead, I want us to look at this passage and realize that Paul is telling the Colossians, look, there are some things that keep me up at night. He says, I have a great conflict for you. And that, that word conflict, the Greek word is agon, and uh, the, the verb form would be agonizo. And you recognize that word. It's the word from which we get our English word, agony or agonize. And, and so the conflict here is not a, a conflict between people where they're at loggerheads with one another. It's not a, a war going on between parties. It is instead an, an emotional hardship. It's something going on inside the heart and mind of Paul that conceivably 
would keep him awake at night. It's an agonizing heart. It's a deep concern. So what is it? What is it? You might realize or might think, okay, well, so pastors have agonizing hearts. Okay, I get that. I, I, I'm, you know, sympathize with you a little bit about that, but just a little bit. And then you can say, well, what does that have to do with me? Okay, that's your, that's your thing. You've got your thing, i got my thing. So what does your thing have to do with me? And that's a good question. It's a valid question, and it's one that Paul answers in this particular passage because his answer is what this has to do with you, Colossians, is actually, well, quite frankly, everything. Everything. So notice in verse 1, that the experience of the great struggles in Paul's heart and mind, it does center in the heart. He says, I want you to know what great conflict or what great agony I am having. The extent of this struggle is deep. He says this is a great conflict. So he's not talking about some minor concern that could easily be forgotten. For example, Sometimes I'll go home at the end of a Sunday evening and uh, finally get the kick the feet up a little bit, you know, just relaxing. And then I remember I stop and think, did did we get all the thermostats turned down at the church, or in the summertime turned up, so that you know it's not going to be warming up to 68 degrees in the auditorium when nobody's there? But you know what? The thought comes into my mind, but it's such a trivial concern that I'm certainly not going to change my clothes again, get the car out of the garage, drive back over to the church, and go and check all the thermostats to make sure they've all been turned down. It's that it, that's a relatively minor concern that is that is quickly forgotten because I figure, after all, I'll come into the church in the morning, and if it's too warm, then I'll turn it down and shame on us for not getting that taken care of, and that's done and been done with it. It's also, what Paul is talking about, is also not a huge problem for somebody else, but is really kind of irrelevant to me, and I don't really have anything to do with it. For example, a few weeks ago, I was chatting with a pastor friend who pastors a relatively small church in Iowa, and he was sharing with me that um, six different couples had left his church within a matter of a few weeks' time. And there weren't any problems. I mean, they were all, you know, understandable situations. They weren't, like, mad at him and going to a church across town. They were actually people who lived a great distance from his town. But nevertheless, I mean, this is a small church, and to lose six couples in a matter of six weeks, that's, that's painful. That hurts. And I sympathized with him, and I, I empathized with him at the time. But, you know, there's not really anything I can do about it, but when I think of him, to pray for him and pray that God would be gracious to him. It's not that kind of struggle that Paul is talking about. The focus of Paul's struggle and the pastoral struggle is people. Notice this. He says, I have a great agony of heart for you, for people. So Paul, you know, Paul conceivably could have been concerned about his financial situation. He doesn't mention that at all. He doesn't say anything about his personal hardships, even though Paul is writing this letter from prison. I mean, he doesn't say, I'm, I've got great agony of heart over my imprisonment and the fact that I am in chains. Now, that's not the thing. He says, I am in agony of heart for you, for you. 
And for you, he's speaking to people who also know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is clear back in verse 2 as he opened the letter. He says, I'm writing to you, the, the brothers, in, uh, to you who are in Colossae, you who are saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So these are people who know the Savior that Paul knows. And they are also people who know of him, but they don't know him personally. We get this from the rest of verse 1. He says, I have this burden of heart, this agony of heart for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Colossae from prison and writing to a, a people, a church, a congregation that he has never personally met. His involvement with them is indirect. Apparently, someone who came to faith in Christ under his ministry elsewhere trans, uh, went home to Colossae and, and spread the gospel in his hometown, and a local church began there in Colossae and then also in Laodicea. But Paul was not directly connected with them. Nevertheless, his concern, his agony of heart, is for people, these people who know of him, but people whom he has never met people, people. He has a great struggle of heart that centers on God's people. Now, why? What, what, what is the reason for these concerns of heart? There are three issues that spark this conflict within him, this concern within him, and I want you to notice these three issues. One is the danger of discouragement, the danger of discouragement. He says in verse 2, so let's read verses 1 and 2 together again. I have this, I want you to know this great conflict I have for you, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Their hearts may be encouraged. So, you know, any pastoral, uh, any, any pastor in, in the work of the ministry from the time of the Apostle Paul to the present day knows that there is, within the congregation, within God's people, there is a danger of discouragement. And that discouragement can come, uh, it can come from without in the sense that we as God's people can be discouraged over our minority status in, in the world, in our community, the minority status. And, and that's a kind of discouragement that the influence comes from outside of Christianity, and, and just by way of illustration of the, and I don't probably need to belabor this point, but the minority status, I, I read recently of a young man, his name is Liam Morrison. He's a junior high boy, seventh grade boy, who wore a t-shirt to gym class that said, quote, there are only two genders. Profound thought, right? I mean, he could have quoted Genesis, God made them, male and female created he them. There are two genders. There are only two genders. Well, uh, he was told to go change his t-shirt, take it off, and he respectfully declined to do so. So the uh, school officials, he was taken to the, church, the school office, the school officials called his dad and told, him, told his dad, you need to come and take your son home because he's being disrespectful and he won't cooperate because he was wearing a t-shirt that affirmed a biblical truth. 
and in explaining their, explaining their response to this uh, T-shirt, the school administration said that they asked him to do that because, or told him to do that because that shirt, quote, targeted students of a protected class, namely in the area of gender identity. Now, you and I hear these kinds of things, and we say, well, how come every other class is a protected class, but Christians who have convictions, biblically oriented, biblically based, solid biblical convictions, we're not protected class in living out our convictions. Why is that? And we can get discouraged over that minority status. It's also possible that we can get discouraged over the diversity of error that attacks our faith. And I'm thinking especially here of the error that is promulgated by those within the larger, quote-unquote, Christian church. Just as an example, a few weeks ago, we had our Maundy Thursday service before Easter Sunday, and um, I, I think it was at that service or after that service, maybe it was Sunday, Easter Sunday, whatever, I was talking to, to Jan Dean, and she was saying, of course, our our, our remaining charter member who knows the history of our area, the history of the church, the community, and all the rest. I mean, there's not, not much history detail she doesn't know. But she was saying in almost a lament, I think, she says, you know, I remember there was a time when we would have a community Good Friday service. We would have a, not just a community one, but there was a, a combined Good Friday service. And many of the churches would get together and different pastors would take the different words of Christ from the cross and we would have this, this big service together and the different churches and, and from not, and not all Baptists, okay, but from different denominations. But the thing was that each of the pastors of those churches, of those different denominations, all held to the same fundamentals of the faith. And today, we'd be hard-pressed to find enough pastors who hold to the fundamentals of the faith within even our, in our community, holding to the fundamentals of the faith, that we could fellowship enough together to be able to hold such a service, that those uh, so many pastors could teach, take one of the words of Christ from the cross. We would have to include the woman pastor over here, or the you know, the one that denies the inspiration of the Scripture over here or whatever. And when you see that kind of diversity of error and watch it as it happens in your own lifetime, it can be discouraging. And possibly discouragement can come over the fragmentation of the church, uh, over its fragmentation on a larger scale. When you think about the number of denominations and the splitting of denominations, sometimes over nonsensical stuff, sometimes over very important and critical and biblical stuff. But it happens. You see it. And also that fragmentation can come on a smaller scale when that division or the fragmentation is within a particular local church. Some of you have been there and you have experienced that and you know the the discouragement that you feel when either you have to leave or 
other people, you see other people leaving over maybe sometimes silly stuff, but nevertheless, the fragmentation is there. All of this can be discouraging. Paul says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you, that your hearts may be encouraged. There's also, secondly, the danger of disunity, disunity, some of which I've already kind of alluded to. But notice he says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together, being knit together. What is it that can cause disunity within a local church? I, I think there's this combination of ideas that work together. One of them, one of those ideas is that God's people can get so wrapped up with distractions over other things and find other th- and fall in love with other things that they forget about the love of Christ for all of his saints. So they're, they're, they're off into this thing and they're off into that thing and all the rest of that kind of stuff, and they have their own thing, and, and that's their passion. That's the thing that they love most. And then they come together uh, to church where we're all supposed to be together in love with Christ because of his great love for all of us, and we forget about that love of Christ for all of his saints, and consequently then, we fail to love one another as we ought to love one another. Again, if we become very passionate about politics, for example, and a particular, a particular issue in the political spectrum of things, and, and we're, I mean, that's just like, that's our thing. You know, we're really, we're passionate about that. And, and there's this brother or sister in Christ who's not quite so passionate about that, and frankly doesn't pay much attention to politics and couldn't tell you what's happened on Fox News and all the hubbub in Fox News lately. That's not their thing. They could care less about that thing. Well, then you start to look at that person askance and you think, are they going woke? Is there something wrong with them? I mean, why, why aren't they passionate about this? Maybe because they're passionate about Christ, you see. And maybe this person's passion over current affairs and what's happening in the political arena is so, has so consumed them that they've lost a sense of love for Christ and Christ's love for that person down the pew. Well, that's one thing that can cause disunity in the church. Another thing is uh, when we lack assurance, we lack assurance due to a lack of understanding. Look at verse 2 again. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. All the riches of the full assurance of understanding. When I don't understand the wealth that I possess, that can lead to disunity in the church. What is the wealth that you as a Christian possess? Look back, at, look back at chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, To them, to his saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the wealth that you and I possess? The wealth of Christ in us, the hope of glory. All right? Christ in us, the hope of glory. When I fail to understand that wealth that I possess, the wealth that 
everything necessary for my salvation, for my sanctification, for my glorification, for the living of the abundant life in Christ, when, when I fail to realize that my wealth is all found in Christ, not have that assurance, forget about that wealth, then I can start, listen, I can start looking for assurance or wealth somewhere else. And there's where the disunity can come into play. For example, there are some who have bought into the prosperity gospel, if not following prosperity gospel preachers, buying into the prosperity gospel thinking, such as, I've come to church today, therefore, I expect God to bless me tomorrow. Or, I put a check in the offering, or on the offering box, and therefore, I expect a tenfold return on my investment in this church. And then it doesn't come. Then what happens? There must be something wrong with this church. There must be something wrong with where I'm putting my investment. God isn't prospering me the way he should be prospering me because of the way I'm committing myself to this thing. So there must be something wrong with this thing rather than realizing there's something wrong with my understanding or with my thinking. There are others who fall prey to the to the idea that I need to, we need to have an emotionally charged worship experience. I need to come into church, no matter how I'm feeling when I come in, I need to come into church and get pumped up and get charged up so that when I go out, I'm feeling good, even if I was feeling crummy when I came in. But guess what? I don't feel so good when I'm going out. We sang this song, it was slow, and it didn't pump me up, and I, did, I wasn't excited, it didn't, it did, you know, because the, the, the beat wasn't there, or the enthusiasm wasn't there, and the guy leading the singing, he was kind of blasé standing up there, just standing up there going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, how boring is that? Come on, there's got to be something wrong with this. Where's your wealth? Is it in an emotionally charged worship experience? Or is it in the truth of the songs that you just sang? Oh, if the truth of what you sang, if, it's, if it penetrates your heart, you realize, whoa, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Or perhaps this disunity can come when we lose the wonder of the mystery. What am I talking about? Again, verse 2. Paul says, My great concern is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, both of the Father and of Christ. That literally should, be, should read, uh, The mystery of God, which is Christ the mystery of God, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When I lose wonder at the mystery of God, which is Christ, then 
I can be a participant that brings disunity in the congregation. Our focus, our, fo- our united focus as a people of God must be on God's revelation that demystifies. What am I talking about? When Paul's talking about the mystery of God, he's talking about truth that has been hidden and could not be could not be uncovered apart from his divine revelation. So, for example, how do we know that God created man, male, and female? How do we know that God intends for marriage to be between a man and a woman? How do we know what happened to this world that, that has resulted in such a horrific mess that it's in? How do we know? How do we know how that mess is ever going to be fixed? How do we know that there is a way for this messy, messy people that inhabit this world, including me, can ever hope to have the glories of heaven and an eternal life. How do we know that there is such a place as heaven, that there is such a thing as everlasting life? How do we know this? Because God has revealed it to us, and we could not figure it out on our own. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, there was a vast hiddenness about the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Messiah. Now, after the resurrection, after Christ has come, all the revelation that we're going to get, we have gotten. We have received it. And and listen, listen, it all revolves around Christ. All of God's revelation to man revolves around Christ. Jesus is the center of that revelation. That's why Paul says... That you, uh, that you would be knit together, you would be encouraged in the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All right, so what happens when you lose that focus? What happens if we lose that focus on the mystery which is Christ? What happens when we lose the wonder of that mystery? Well, we start to turn to secondary things, secondary issues, things like, you know, musical tastes, colors of carpet, the decor in a building, what a structure looks like, things of that nature, or dress codes, or, you know, whatever. We start to judge one another on some of these things, and we lose the wonder of the mystery which is Christ, and we get focused on things that really don't matter all that much. Or we get focused on pet projects or ministries. In the past, in my past ministries, so this happened a long, long time ago, and you don't know anything about it, don't know the people involved and everything, so that's fine. But for example, in one ministry, there was, there was a, a family that the father came in and announced to me, we're leaving the church. Why? Because you've closed the school. Well, there was no choice. The school had to close. 
but he thought that every dime in the church's savings account should be used to keep a school open so he could have a school for his children and not pay for it. So because we weren't going to do that, and we really couldn't do that, I'm leaving the church. His focus was not on Christ. His focus was not on the mystery. He wasn't, he wasn't consumed with the wonder of the mystery, which is Christ. He was focused on a pet ministry. Or in the ministry that was in but prior to that, there was uh, the church had an Awana program, and one of the I, I was in charge of the Awana as a staff pastor. I was in charge of the Awana program, and one of the workers, uh, I was chatting with him one day, one evening in Awana, and he he said, "You know what? Let me tell you something. I love this program." I said, "Well, good." He said, "I'll tell you this though, if this church ever does away with the Awana program, we're out of here. We're out of here." Really? Where's your focus? Are you consumed with a desire and a longing and a hunger and a wonder at the mystery, which is Christ? Or are you so focused on your pet ministry? When we lose wonder at the mystery, we focus our wonder and our attention on some lesser thing. Or it could be even personal interests, like how warm or cool it is in the building. I don't know about you, but I'm sweating up here. I'm going to be back next Sunday, whether it's hot or cold, you know. Why? Because I love you, and I'm serving you, and I want to be together with you, you know. But, and <laughs> I've often said, you know, you set that thing in, this, in the wintertime on 71 degrees. It's 71 degrees in here. I don't know what, and I ask, what, and some people are going like, uh, uh. well, what is the thermostat set in your home? 66. Okay, great. You realize that if it were 66 in here, that a third of the other people of your fellow church members would be freezing, and they'd be griping at me about it being so cold in here. You know, we, we, don't, we don't focus on things like that. Why? Because we, we want to be consumed with the wonder of the mystery, which is Christ, and not be consumed with and focus on personal interests like how warm or how cold it is, or how comfortable the seat is or isn't, you know? And I, I realize that some of these things you, you address at times, especially if it's a grassroots, then it's, uh, yeah, but this not, can't be, it cannot be, it must not be the focus. Why? Because if it is, unity goes out the window because everybody has their own thing. And the thing of it is, and I've been around long enough, and maybe it's many of you have too, that people have caused problems and left churches over such matters as not being to their liking. The danger of discouragement, the danger of disunity. A third danger that he brings up in verse 4 is the danger of dissuasion. Dissuasion. He says, now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. The reality is that God's people can be vulnerable to smooth-talking salesmen. You know what? They can also be vulnerable to harsh-talking authoritarian brutes. Isn't it amazing that there there can be such disparity between very, very large churches I'm thinking of one, for example, on one hand, that is a very, very large church, 
and the pastor is a milk toast schmoozy, you know, I won't, I won't say a word about sin, I won't mention the idea of hell, because that would just turn people off, and I just want to positively affirm people, and the crowds flock. But you know what? I also know of large churches where the pastor is, he is brutal and harsh and abusive, and his language is, is coarse, and yet there are people that flock to him. Why? Why? Because people can be persuaded with good-sounding arguments. And this is what Paul is talking about here. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived by persuasive words. The smooth talker, as well as the harsh talker, can so persuade people to follow them. can also be vulnerable to hot-button topics. Hot-button topics, like all what? Woke? Any subject related to wokeism today? Emphases on speculative uh, interpretations or details related to prophecy? You know, the latest buzzword that, that is being fought over in conservative Christianity, I'm not talking about liberals versus, uh, you know, uh, conservatives. I'm talking about within Christian conservative Christianity, is the whole notion of Christian nationalism. There's a big fight going on over Christian nationalism. Should we be working and fighting to make the United States a Christian nation again, as if it ever was in terms of its general populace? You know, and, and, and all these nuances being argued and debated back and forth over this matter of Christian nationalism. And people can get sucked into these kinds of debates and arguments and discussions, and you get gravitate, you gravitate to the guy who can be most persuasive, and you say, well, this guy says this, but my pastor doesn't say the same thing, and then what happens? What happens? Danger of dissuasion. We can also be, we can also be vulnerable to buzzwords that diffuse any kind of opposition any kind of confrontation. For, for example, I feel that this is what God would have me to do. Boom. Shuts down the discussion. This is God's will. Oh, well, boom. Shuts down discussion. The Lord told me to, boom. Shuts down discussion. Now, Paul says, look, Listen, the struggles of my heart center on the church. I do not want to see, my burden of heart is that the church not be discouraged, not fall prey to disunity, but instead be knit together in love, not to lose the wonder of the mystery which is Christ. No. And not to be dissuaded by persuasive words. What's the solution then? What's the solution to these struggles? The solution to the struggles center on he who is the focus of the wonder of the mystery, Christ. The solutions to the struggles center in Christ in verses 5 through 7. Because look at what he says in verse 5. 
Even though in verse 1, he says, I have a great conflict, I have great agony in my heart and my mind regarding you. He says in verse 5, though I am absent from the body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, rejoicing. I have reason to rejoice. What are you rejoicing over, Paul? I'm rejoicing over the fact that you, God's people, have a disciplined behavior toward those who are in Christ. He says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order, your good order. You know what he's talking about there? He's not talking about the, you know, whether they maintain a strict, uh, consistent, week-by-week order of service. No, he's talking about God's people in, in this congregation, this local congregation in Colossae, God's people getting along with one another. They're not sidetracked by petty differences. They're not passionate for selfish interests. There's good order of people who, are, who, who he hears are loving each other and they're caring for one another, and they're, they're not allowing themselves to be dissuaded and taken apart and disunit, uh, the, the unity uh, dissipate. No, a disciplined behavior toward those who are in Christ. He's also rejoicing, I think, for the firmness of their faith in Christ. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The kind of steadfastness that led Martin Luther to stand and say, here I stand. I'm not going to back down from my convictions in, in, the, in, the, in the word, the truth of the scripture. I'm not going to do that. Or young seventh grade Liam Morrison, you need to take off that offensive t-shirt. Well, I'm sorry, but no, I'm not going to do that. This isn't offensive. This is just truth, you know, respectfully declining. But there's a firmness, a firmness that's expressed. And those of us who see a young man take such a position and hold to it so firmly, and even if it's going to cost him something, you have to, you have to tip your hat to such a one. It's got to make your heart feel pretty good, like, you know, maybe there is some hope for, for the next generation. They're not all a bunch of you whatever, okay? Thirdly, look at verse 6. What are the solutions to to the struggles they center in Christ? In verse 6, he says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. Let me ask you something. How did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord? By faith you have been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You confess with your mouth the Lord that Jesus is Lord. It is by faith that you received him. You, by, faith, by, by faith you believed in and count upon his royal deity. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. It is by faith that you trust in his saving humanity, that he is Christ Jesus, the one who saves and you, by faith, submit to him as your sovereign authority. He is your Lord. He is your master. And so a consistent, ongoing walk with Christ is one that continues to walk in him by faith as your Savior, your master, who is God. Consistent walk with Christ is the solution. 
Another fourth solution, verse, first part of verse 7, is that you be deeply rooted in Christ, that your life is deeply rooted in Christ. Verse 7 begins with that word, rooted in Him, rooted in Him. Doesn't that remind you of uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus' teaching in John 15? I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, stay rooted in me, abide in me. He is your life. Fifthly, solution that is a Christ-centered solution involves a well-built doctrine of Christ. You're rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. I think every, every pastor who loves God's people and loves Christ and wants his people to grow in Christ has this passion that they together keep growing in their learning of Christ, being built up in him. The picture, the imagery here is like you have a foundation laid and you keep building, like a building, right? Built up in him. Keep growing in your learning, and not only growing in your learning, but changing from your learning. The life changes because of what is learned, and this is what is, this is, what is meant by this uh, being established in the faith. Your life, as you learn more of Christ, you're, you change, you become more like Christ, you're more firmly established in Christ, growing in your learning and changing from your learning. This well-built doctrine of Christ is a solution to the agony of heart that Paul, the pastor for the people of Colossae, feels. And then lastly, Lastly, the last solution is an overflowing gratitude to Christ, as he says at the end of verse 7, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Here's the thing. If you're growing well, growing rightly, the more you learn and grow, the more you're humbled. Now, there are people who learn and become proud they're not growing. The more you learn of Christ and grow in Christ, the more it humbles you. you know, I think, for example, of uh, I think, for example, of the doctrine of election. You can't you can't can't escape the truth of that doctrine. Christ, you know, God the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. How do you how do you get around that? Okay, it's there. But here's the thing: if you've come to faith in Christ. And you, you hear that, you say, oh, man, you know, God chose me before the foundation of the world. I must be really something. No, listen, that may be something you've learned, but you haven't grown thereby because if you really understand the truth of Scripture and the truth of that doctrine, what it's going to do, it's going to humble you to the ground, and you're going to say, oh, my God in heaven, why in the world would you choose this creature? Why? Look at him. Look at them. They're pure. The, them, my me. 
Maybe this is what Paul had in mind when he said in Romans chapter 9, I would, I would rather perish if my nation would come to faith in Christ, if they would be saved. Why me? That's humility. Really growing and learning and growing will humble you. The more you grow, the more you love. And the more you grow and love, the more thankful you'll become. That's why Paul says that you have been taught, that you would be rooted and bound, uh, built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Proper, true, biblical, spiritual growth in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ yields, yields a humble people who have a deeper, growing, deeper love for Christ, for one another, and they are just the thankful people, just a grateful people, that God would have anything to do with me, that I get to have something to do with you, that you are my brother or sister in Christ, that we have a place where we can gather together and we can have fellowship, sweet fellowship with one another, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, here's the thing. God's people can be a source of great agony of heart or of great joy. And I find it fascinating that Paul moves from communicating the, the depths of his concern in his heart to the joy that he has because of what he's heard for these people, for God's people. All right, now look, let's think about our lives, considering our own lives. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord? Is that your faith, that you have called upon him to save you and confessed with your mouth Christ Jesus as Lord? Okay, if so... How is your walk in him? Think of the trajectory of your life from where you are right now. Throw it out there. Look at the trajectory of your life as a Christian. Is that, is that trajectory, keep going the way you're going, keep heading in that direction, follow that trajectory, is it leading to sleeplessness or rejoicing? Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would challenge us from this honest expression of the Apostle Paul of his concern of heart for God's people. And may all of us learn from it and grow by it today.